Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Vintage Matches Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson, flying solo again today. On each episode of this podcast, I will pick a sporting event from history and examine it through today's lenses. Just a reminder, this is a part of a series where we are working our way up to the Euro 2020 tournament set to take place across Europe this summer. So, the game we are focused on today is the semifinal of the 1992 UEFA European Championship between Denmark and the Netherlands. Euro 1992 kept the same format from 84 and 88, with eight nations making the finals. At those finals, two group stages and then semis and a final would determine the champion. What was different about this tournament, though, was the political turmoil of communism falling starting to affect the sporting world. I spoke in the last episode about the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the reunification of Germany coming. Well, East Germany did enter qualifying and were placed in Group 5 with West Germany. However, before the matches actually began, the East German matches were scrapped and the players from East Germany were allowed to play for the new Germany as Germany reunified in November of 1990. The Faroe Islands and San Marino entered qualifying for the first time as well. There's more political drama before the tournament began, but let's see who joined host Sweden at the tournament proper. Qualifying was again split into seven groups, with only the group winners advancing to the finals. In group one, France, with Michel Platini in charge, were excellent. The French won all eight of their matches to finish ahead of Czechoslovakia, competing for the last time under that name, Spain, Iceland, and Albania. Group two went to Scotland, who narrowly qualified, finishing on 11 points, with Switzerland, Romania, and Bulgaria right behind them on 10, 10, and 9, respectively. The Soviet Union won Group 3, finishing ahead of Italy, Norway, Hungary, and Cyprus. But the Iron Curtain was falling, and before the tournament, the former Soviet Union became CIS, or the Commonwealth of Independent States, made up of 11 of the, seven, of the 15 former Soviet territories. So they qualified as the Soviet Union, but then competed as CIS in the actual tournament. More chaos ensued in Group 4. Yugoslavia won the group on 14 points, just edging out Denmark on 13, who finished ahead of Northern Ireland, Austria, and the Faroe Islands. However... Yugoslavia was in the throes of an unfortunate civil war, and FIFA banned them from competition in May, just before the tournament. That would be May of 1992. This meant that Denmark would be allowed into the last eight of the finals as they had finished second in the qualifying group. And again, they finished they finished on 13 points and Yugoslavia on 14, so it wasn't like they just let some just random team enter. I mean, this was this was a good team, but a very good qualifying campaign, and finished just behind the uh, leaders of that group. Group 5 of the aforementioned New Germany, and the Germans topped the group on 10 points, with Wales barely missing out finishing on nine points and ahead of Belgium and Luxembourg. The Netherlands, the defending Euro champions, won group six with Portugal, Greece, Finland, and Malta all lagging behind the Dutch. England rode three wins and three draws to top group seven ahead of Euro eight, ahead of the Euro 1988 and World Cup 1990 surprise outfits Republic of Ireland, as well as Poland and Turkey. So after all kinds of political upheaval and late change, the tournament proper was set to take place across four cities in Sweden. Let's see how the group stage played out. Group 1 saw the Scandinavian duo of Sweden and Denmark reign supreme. In the opening match of the tournament in Solna, Jan Eriksson gave the host the lead before Jean-Pierre Papin equalized for the French, earning a draw. England opened with consecutive nil-nil draws with France and then Denmark, with both matches taking place in Malmo. Sweden beat Denmark back in Solna to move to the top of the group after two match days, thanks to Thomas Brolin's second-half strike. The final Group 1 matches were played simultaneously, with Sweden falling behind to a David Platt goal, but coming back to beat England 2-1 with second-half goals from Eriksson and Brolin. Denmark needed to beat France in order to leapfrog them in the standings and earn a place in the semis. Henrik Larsson, not that one, got the Danes off to a great start in the 8th minute, but Papin equalized on the hour mark. For 18 minutes, it seemed like France was going through until Lars Elstrup scored to give Denmark their needed lead and eventual win. France and England went home as big disappointments. Group 2 placed familiar foes Germany and the Netherlands in the battle with Scotland and CIS. 
The Dutch opened the group with a 1-0 win over the Scots, thanks to a late goal from the young Dennis Bergkamp. Germany needed a late Thomas Hassler free kick to salvage a point against CIS. This was a ridiculous free kick, by the way. Germany bounced back in their second match with a 2-0 win over Scotland, with goals from Karl-Heinz Riedler and Stefan Effenberg, while CIS and the Netherlands played on a 0-0 draw in Gothenburg. CIS, Germany, and the Netherlands all had a chance to book a place in the semis going into the final match day. However, despite Scotland being mathematically eliminated, they tore up CIS 3-0 with goals from Paul McStay, Brian McClare, and Gary McAllister. This meant that a winner in the Germany versus Netherlands match would finish top of the group. Frank Rijkaard got the Dutch off to a flying start, scoring in the fourth minute. Rob Vichka added to the lead just 11 minutes later. Jurgen Klinsmann pulled one back in the second half, but Bergkamp sealed the win with a 72nd minute strike. Our semifinals were now set. In the first semi, host Sweden fell to the Germans in a thrilling match. Hassler opened the scoring with a terrific free kick, another free kick, in the 11th minute. It stayed 1-0 to Germany until halftime, but the Germans doubled their lead just before the hour mark when Riedle finished off a move of considerable build-up play. Brolin pulled one back from the penalty spot a few minutes later, and it was game on. In the 80th minute, though, Riedle scored again, this time finishing expertly after a brilliant pass from Thomas Helmer. Just a minute later, Kenneth Anderson headed home to make it 3-2, but it was too little too late. Germany, playing as a unified nation for the first time, were in the final, but who would join them? That question leads us to our match of focus for the episode. So come back with me to a June night in Gothenburg, Sweden, for the semifinal of the 1988 UEFA European Football Championships between Netherlands and Denmark. Hans van Broeckelen in goal. The sweeper was Ronald Koeman. Center backs were Adrie van Tegelen and Frank de Boer. In the midfield, it was Frank Rijkaard, Jan Voiters, and Rob Vichka. The attacking midfielder was Dennis Bergkamp. Up front, it was Ruud Hullet, Marco van Basten, and Brian Roy. Richard Muller-Nielsen was the manager for Denmark, and his style rubbed some of his players the wrong way. The Laudra brothers and Jan Molby quit the national team in 1990 due to disagreements with the coach. The younger Laudra, Brian, however, agreed to come back in the spring of 1992. Brian was in the starting lineup for the semifinal, alongside Fleming Polvson up front. In the midfield was Henrik Larsson, Kim Vilfort, and John Jensen, and Kim Kristjof. At the back, it was John Sievbeck, Torben Picknick, Lars Olsen, and Henrik Andersen. Peter Schmeichel was in goal. Let's get to the match itself. Less than a minute after the Dutch kicked off, Laudrup was away down the left-hand side. All he had to do was square it for the opening Villefort, but Laudrup waited too long and Van Broeckelen smothered. Just five minutes later, though, Laudrup made no mistake with his cross as he found Larsen in the box, who headed home to give Denmark the early lead. The move started after De Boer weirdly tried to keep the ball in play on that left-hand side. Laudrup intercepted and immediately raced down the right, his right, before crossing. 1-0 to the Danes. In the 15th minute, Anderson was booked for a foul on Hulet, which meant that he would be suspended for the final. The ensuing free kick came to nothing, and the first quarter of an hour was gone. On 23 minutes, Holland had their equalizer. Vichka clipped a ball into the box from the left. Rijkaard had gotten forward, and he headed it back into the path of Bergkamp on the edge of the box. The Ajax product hit his first-time shot into the ground, and the strange bounce fooled Schmeichel, and it went into the net 1-1. Over the next 10 minutes of play, neither side, had cre- neither side created any clear-cut chances, with Denmark clearly trying to play on the break. However, in the 33rd minute, Denmark took the lead again, Paulson raced up the left-hand side and crossed to the back post, where Vilfort was waiting. Vilfort was running out of space, so he headed the ball back into Laudrup. Laudrup's header was goal-bound, but was blocked by Komen, but only as far as Larson, who was waiting on the edge of the box. Larson cleanly hit the ball first time into the bottom right-hand corner, giving Van Broeckelen no chance. In the 39th minute, Komen should have been booked for a foul on Paulson, which would have ruled him out for the final, but the ref incredibly did not produce a card. Rijkaard was less lucky, seeing yellow just a few minutes later. 
The ref's influence grew even larger as Denmark had a penalty shout just before halftime, but it was not given, and the Danes went into the break with a well-earned 2-1 lead. DeBoer was taken off at halftime after a poor first half and replaced by Vim Kieft, who was our first sub of the match. Denmark got the ball rolling in the second half, full of confidence. The Netherlands looked even more confident going forward in the first part of the second half, but still leaky at the back. In the 57th minute, Laudrup was surprisingly taken off for Lars Elstrup, much to the surprise of both the commentator and the spectators. Hulet and Van Basten, who had been the best players at Euro 1988, both looked off the pace in this match. In fact, this was Van Basten's last appearance at a major tournament, as his injuries essentially ended his career after the 92-93 season with Milan. In the 70th minute, Denmark made their final change, bringing on Klaus Christensen for the booked and injured Anderson. In fact, Anderson had to go off on a stretcher with an apparent knee injury. Scary stuff. The Dutch started to dominate and push Denmark deeper and deeper into their own ter- territory. They finally got the reward in the 86th minute. Bergkamp received possession and fired a shot from outside the box that was deflected behind for a corner. Vichka took the corner. Hulet flicked it on, and it fell at the feet of Rijkaard after a small scramble in the box. Rijkaard smashed the ball into the back of the neck, and the Dutch were level. The defending champs pushed for the winner, but Denmark held on for extra time. The extra session showed how tired both teams were. The Dutch had the best chance of extra time when they broke quickly after a Danish corner. Van Basten, Hulet, and Rijkaard all played a role in the attack, and the ball found Brian Roy in the box. Roy, who was disappointing all evening, hit his shot straight at Schmeichel, and the chance was gone. The whistle blew for the teams to switch sides, and we were 15 minutes away from a penalty shootout. Just as the second period of extra time started, the Netherlands created a huge chance, with Hulet's outstretched leg getting a piece of the crossed ball, but Schmeichel again did just enough to take the pace off of it, and the ball was cleared off the line. The second 15-minute segment was more stretched and open than the first, and there were a couple of decent chances for both sides. The Dutch made their final change in the 115th minute, with John Fent Schip coming on for Roy. In the last few minutes, both teams realized what they had to lose and decelerated. It was on to penalties. Ronald Koeman was up first, and he roofed his spot kick into the net to give the Dutch the early advantage. Larsen, the man with both goals for Denmark on the night, was up next, and his shot was tipped by the keeper but found its way in. Van Basten was up next, and he tried to go to the keeper's left, but Schmeichel, but Schmeichel saved really well. Van Brooklyn got his hand on the second Danish penalty, but Paulsen's shot also found the net. 2-1 Denmark after two penalties each. Bergkamp and Elstrup both buried their shots to make it 3-2 after three. Then it was Rijkaard and Vilfort's turn to exchange positive results. Vichka was up next for the Dutch, and he had to score to keep his nation alive. He did, which meant that Kim Kristoff could send his country to their first ever major international final. The midfielder's left-footed shot found the back of the net after a short run-up, and the Danish players went wild. What a dramatic ending to a fantastic match. After a couple of wonderful semifinals, the final itself was slightly underwhelming. It pitted the two teams who finished second in their group against each other, so maybe not the highest possible quality, but at least we got a new matchup. Germany controlled much of the match, but didn't take their chances when presented to them. In the 18th minute, Jensen scored a rocket of a shot past Bodo Ugner after Jurgen Kohler was robbed of possession. Schmeichel was excellent in the Danish net, and then in the 78th minute, Denmark sealed the win through a Villefort goal. The final whistle blew, and Denmark completed the most unlikely title run in the tournament's history. So the last third of each of these podcasts, I like to kind of wrap up the tournament as a whole and talk about you know the match, obviously, I watched, and just the things I learned from the tournament and the research that I did. And a couple of them are kind of more basic. You know, I'll, I'm going to read out the team of the tournament, you know, golden boots and things like that. Um, so let's kind of get to those now before we get to our final five categories. So, so the team of the tournament for the UEFA Euro 1992 was Peter Schmeichel of Denmark and goal, Jocelyn Angeloma and Laurent Blanc of France at the back, with Andres Brema and Jurgen Kohler of Germany also at the back. The midfield was Brian Laudrup of Denmark, Stefan Effenberg and Thomas Hessler of Germany, Ruud Hullet 
of the Netherlands uh, in the midfield as well. And then the forwards were Dennis Bergkamp and Marco Van Basten. So again, a phenomenal team. This is another one that if we did our fictional tournament of all the teams of the tournament, this one would do quite well. Um, again, that's probably something I'll do on this last podcast as I wrap up the whole series. Uh, the golden boot winners of the both qualifying and of the tournament itself. So Darko Pansev of, Yuslog- of Yugoslavia, who obviously were not allowed to qualify. They won their qualifying group, but um, didn't get to play because of the civil war that was taking place in their country at the time. Uh, he finished top of the qualifying goal scoring charts on 10 goals. So obviously a pretty impressive return. And then the tournament proper, it was actually split four ways. Uh, and that was Henrik Larsson of Denmark, Karl-Heinz Riedle of Germany, Thomas Brolin of Sweden, and Dennis Bergkamp of the Netherlands all shared the tournament golden boot. Goal of the tournament. Okay, this one didn't have a bunch of classics. I thought a couple of the goals from 1988 were better than the ones in 1992. Um, but Thomas Hessler scored two free kicks for, uh, for I almost said West Germany, for Germany in this tournament. I'm so used to saying West Germany covering these uh, old tournaments that I'm now going to have to make the mental switch to actually just calling them Germany now. Uh, Thomas Hessler, he had yeah, two free kicks. Uh, but I thought I think the one against CIS in the group stage was probably a little bit better. But the stakes of the one he scored in the semifinal, I think, um, gives me the uh, gives him the goal of the tournament award. I think what was cool about it was in the one against CIS in the group stage, which that that salvaged a late draw for them. So that was a huge goal, too. But he kind of whipped it um, top right, kind of, you know, over the wall, top right, you know, keeper outstretched hand, you know, couldn't get to it. The second one, I think he fooled the Sweden keeper because obviously he had scored one earlier in the tournament and he goes over the wall to the left. And so the keeper kind of leans to the to, to I guess the keeper's left, the kicker's right, thinking, oh, he's going to go the same way. And like kind of just as he takes that step, Hessler whips it into the top left corner um, perfectly. Just, yeah, I mean, it almost looks like it goes into an empty net because the keeper's just not even close. So I think that strategy like hitting it the other way from where he scored the first one, I think was, was pretty cool. And obviously the stakes of scoring a free kick like that in the semifinals of the Euros, pretty awesome. So yeah, that was my goal of the tournament. Uh, one big takeaway from the tournament. And I think because this, this tournament was held in Sweden in smaller stadiums, it lacked that bigness um, in quotations that I talked about with both 1984 and 1988. The fan support was amazing as the smaller stadiums were filled with colorful support, colorful supporters of all eight nations, but those stadiums just held less people. So it just, it wasn't as full. It wasn't, it didn't have that like, kind of massive, you know, final feel like some of the other ones had. Uh, this is the last Euro before the back pass law changed. Obviously you used to be able to kind of pass it back to a keeper and he could pick it up. This law changed after this tournament and went to effect right after the tournament ended um, across all levels of football and has just totally changed the game. I mean, I think there's pros and cons of different, you know, rule changes and things like that. But I think with this one, it, I mean, I guess the only con is if you're a goalkeeper, you like to have a little bit more control of the game, but and get to use your hands a little bit more. But I think overall, for the sake of the game, it was a huge, huge plus and a great rule change. Michael Cox, uh, one of my favorite writers, uh, Englishman, he has written brilliantly about this topic in both the mixer and zonal marking um, about just how much this rule changed the game. Obviously, for keepers, made it more difficult, made them have to play with their feet more, made them more skilled with their feet. I mean, we see some players today. I mean, you know, Ederson, for example, from Manchester City, I mean, he can ping passes just like with pinpoint accuracy, 60 yards down the field. I mean, he's got assists this season and last season. I mean, he, you know, players have gotten used to this. And in Barcelona, you know, in their kind of heyday under Pep Guardiola, they're using Victor Valdez as like a sweeper at times, you know, and Manuel Neuer, same thing uh, for both Germany and for Bayern Munich. I mean, he is, you know, super aggressive off his line, really skilled. I mean, he'll take, you know, these really elegant touches, you know, at the back I and mean, with just, you know, with in seemingly very risky situations. I mean, none of that happens without this back pass law being changed. Also, I love it because it's just, the, it's such a bailout for these defenders who like, oh, I'm being pressured a little bit. Let me just turn and whack it, you know, 30 yards back to my keeper who can just pick it up and we can just kind of like the game can kind of just stall for a second. 
Um, I think there's more kind of chaos at the back now, which is good. And there's a reward for pressing now as where there wasn't as much of one then. So the teams just didn't press as much. So yeah, I think it's just a huge, huge law that went into effect after this. And that's my biggest takeaway is like, it's kind of the last tournament of like an old school mentality. It was also two points for a win and one point for a draw. Where as now all international tournaments are three points for a win and one point for a draw, which, you know, that has its own pros and cons. I've actually read some interesting kind of scholarship on how the three points for a win can actually be negative because teams now, because there's so much to lose when you are a goal up, you lose two points instead of just one that once someone gets an advantage, they become more defensive. So is that actually, did that actually serve its purpose in making teams go for the win more often? It probably did. There are less draws. I think that's, that's some of the stuff that I've read in, in a couple of pieces, but is the game actually, there's more kind of cynical fouls and people are so desperate to not allow teams to equalize that. Like it almost like, becomes more defensive after a team gets a goal. So I don't know. I think there's pros and cons to that, but I, I do think like the less draws is a good, is a good thing. There's more just kind of natural winners. And um, I think, yeah, there's pros and cons to every rule change. And I think the keeper one has very few cons. And I think the three points for a win and one point for a draw has maybe a couple more uh, cons than, than pros, but, or maybe it's about even maybe like, I think in the, like they, they talked about how the only um, premier league title that would have swung is 1995 would have gone to Manchester United if it was under the old two points for a win system, which is, you know, I mean, that that's that's obviously significant, I guess. But like if it, that, that's the only one that would have been changed, then maybe it hasn't been that big of a change in the game as much as the back pass, which has been a huge change. Um, let's get to the next uh, topic and my favorite one, the best shirt of the tournament. I'm obsessed with football shirts. I'll always, always say that this one was so difficult as nearly all of the nations had impressive shirts. The CIS one is the most rare and those can fetch a few hundred bucks on eBay if you have a legit one. But I think I would have to go with the Denmark home shirts worn in the final, which, yeah, I, Denmark. I mean, they've had multiple throughout the 80s and into the 90s. I mean, they've had some awesome, awesome shirts. Hummel usually designs theirs. The uh, that's their manufacturer. And they just do a great job kind of meshing the like unique designs with the red and white colors. Both their home and away are usually pretty impressive. But I thought the home one especially was pretty great. Uh, Sweden gets an honorable mention because their Adidas one with kind of the three stripes across one of the uh, shoulders was pretty cool. And plus the yellow and blue. That's just like an awesome combo. Um, I collect football shirts. I have a massive collection of my own and I have like this very nerdy Google doc with all of my current collection and my wish list on it. So I want to have a few shirts from each major ter- international tournament uh, since I've been alive. And so this one is on the list. You're in 1992. I was born in 1990. And uh, from this one so far, I have a Jurgen Klinsmann Germany home shirt. Um, and that was, that was pretty cool too, because they have the kind of the, the three stripes of the flag on either shoulder. And then I have, you know, the Klinsmann 18 on the back. Um, Ali McCoy, Scotland and Brian Lodge of Denmark are also on my wish list. So I eventually want to have three from this Euro 92 tournaments. And I have this whole, like, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. One day I'll just have a podcast where I just talk about my shirt collection, but I basically, it's one of the nerdiest things I do. And it's this ridiculous collection. And thankfully my wife does not think it's that crazy. Um, or else I would have to stop like right when I got married, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's only grown uh, recently and, um, yeah, I, I just love it. So yeah, that, that's probably a topic for another day. Uh, favorite player to watch in the match that I focused on, uh, Peter Schmeichel. I thought, uh, I mean, I've seen him play before. I've watched some of these old United games and things like that and seen all these, you know, Premier League clips. And, you know, he's a little bit more kind of modern than some of the players I've talked about so far in terms of kind of, you know, where he lands in kind of our English speaking, you know, somewhat uh, Premier League like tinted, you know, glasses uh, with a lot of this stuff that I get to read. Uh, and Peter Schmeichel obviously loomed large in that. And I thought he loomed large in this game too. He's just so commanding. He controlled the pace of play at times with his big kicks. I mean, he, you know, they'd play it back to him and he would kind of just waste some time, dribbled a couple times and he would just hammer these big kicks up the field. And it didn't really seem like he didn't have a rhyme or reason. Like 
other than just it was a way to kind of waste time, you know, control play and get the ball on the other side of the pitch. I mean, Denmark played a little bit more defensively in this match than than the Netherlands did. Um, and, and, and I understand why. I mean, they were really good on the counterattack, and I think they, you know, have less natural talent. So it made sense that they did that. But I think that would have been impossible without someone like Peter Schmeichel in goal. He made a couple really good saves. Uh, he had a couple a couple kind of like iffy moments coming for crosses, and like, but overall was just so commanding. I mean, he's huge. And you could just hear him shouting even, you know, on this broadcast that I got to watch football, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that that was the guy that kind of stood out to me. Um, although, you know, Lodger had played really well. I, I don't know if he got hurt or whatever, but he was just sub so early. I didn't feel like I could pick him for this. But uh, uh, one random observation from the broadcast. That's one of our other topics here. Um, this was easily the best wa- broadcast I've watched so far. Naturally, the quality is going to get better and better as we move through time. I mean, I would hope that the picture quality would get better and better as we move through time. But the quality of this football stream was excellent. And there's the legendary Martin Tyler on commentary. I speak English, so I definitely respond better to English commentary. But even the non-English speakers can admit that Tyler is among the greats of the game. Um, one thing I did notice from the broadcast was the lack of like quick cut replays and some of that stuff that they had done in the 80s um, and like kind of weird graphics and stuff like that. Uh, I do think this one, there was like an overlay of a time and score that looked a little bit more modern. So I wonder if someone had kind of gone back and like put that on there uh, because there would be this kind of like old school graphic that would pop up every once in a while with the time. And so I do think maybe like the original, original, original broadcast had that. But yeah, the quality of this was like really good. I mean, I, I would encourage anybody that wants to watch this, just go on footballia.net and you can find this match pretty easily. Just search for Euro 1992 and then and then pick this one. But yeah, it was really, really good quality. And I think it, ma- it made it a lot more fun to watch and kind of like take notes on and stuff like that because it was like, it almost felt like I was watching kind of a modern game just, you know, with Martin, Tyler, a younger Martin Tyler um, on the mic. So last, last topic, did the right team win? And right team, again, that, that can be um, tricky you know, thing to answer for a lot of people. Um, and in terms of the fun story and play at the tournament, yes, I would say Denmark, you know, that's that, that's fair that they won. But it is hard to say that the right team won when the team that won didn't even properly qualify. So they wouldn't have been there under normal circumstances if Yugoslavia were allowed to compete. So it's hard to say, oh, yeah, they were the right team. You know, the right team won. But I don't know. All the Final Four nations played some really nice football time at times, and it could have gone to any of those countries. Germany was coming off of a World Cup win in 1990 and nearly made it a double, um, just like the 72 and 74 team back in the day. In the interest of spreading the trophy around, though, I do think Denmark winning was a good result. And it wasn't like they just like plucked it out. I mean, they they played well. It wasn't like just completely lucky, you know, oh, they just like scrapped and clawed their way. It's not like Greece in 2004, as we'll learn. Um, They actually played some really good stuff and had some, you know, really good players, obviously, the likes of Schmeichel and Laudrup. So, no, I I don't think it was like as obvious as maybe, you know, France in 1984, where it was just like, oh, this is so clearly the best team. Like, it's it's good that they won. I don't think that's the case here, but it wasn't like fluky. It doesn't feel fluky. I mean, it feels a little bit fluky in terms of like, you know, oh, it's weird that like the team that got invited two weeks before the tournament started actually ended up winning the tournament. Um, but once you actually see how they played in the tournament itself, it doesn't actually feel that fluky. So I would say, yeah, I would say maybe the right team won, but you know, that's a harder question to answer for this tournament. Um, and just to wrap up, I mean, in many ways, this is kind of like the end of an era. Football was really ready to change in 1982. Um, the Champions League kind of changed. The European Cup changed to the Champions League in 1992. Uh, the Football League structure in England totally changed. Be, and there's a breakaway league, which, you know, uh, talks of a breakaway league, obviously, in the last couple of months here in, in uh, 2021 have been, you know, all the rage with the Super League nonsense. But the Premier League did that back in the day. Now they kept relegation and promotion and kept the football pyramid intact in England. But they it was a, it was a greedy move to get more TV rights. And that's actually written about a little bit when you read about this tournament. They kind of know that's coming. Um, but it totally changed the the English game. I mean, it made it this worldwide TV, you know, global phenomenon where they've received higher and higher dollars for every TV deal that they get. And that's why all the Premier League teams are able to 
have these huge wage bills and you know they're the kind of the top league in the world in terms of like kind of commercial outputs that's because of this breakaway in 1992 so the back pass law changing three points for win becoming more prevalent globalization in general more games on tv i mean football was just really really changing and 1992 was like at this like kind of perfect little crossroads and so that's the thing i took away is like it does kind of feel like the end of an era you know the end of that game it was just like okay this is kind of like the end of the somewhat smaller time era you know we talked about how big year 1984 and year 1988 felt well 1982 kind of went back to that kind of like almost smaller feel because of again the smaller stadiums and it just being in sweden a smaller nation but that was it. I mean, from from then on, all of these tournaments feel like these huge, huge deals. You know, the Euros and the World Cups um, from this point forward. And then obviously some of the rule changes and TV, TV not, not just more matches being on TV, but the production getting better, um, commentary getting better, the picture quality getting better. It just totally changed the game. And I, I mean, obviously now, if you're watching again, like I, for me here in America, just with a couple of packages that I kind of pay for, I'm able to watch games from just almost seemingly any league in the world. I mean, I can spend my entire weekend just going back and back, back to back to back, watching games from... France, Turkey, Spain, Germany, England, Italy. I mean, just whenever I want uh, MLS, like just what I mean, any game I, I want to watch, I can probably find a way to watch it here in the States. And it, that just like wasn't even remotely true in 1992. So um, it's just really cool to see the evolution of how we were able to follow this game uh, worldwide. And I think like this is kind of the end of an era. And we'll learn as we get into, you know, Euro, 1990, Euro 1996 on this next episode, you know, it being in England and the explosion of just the popularity kind of worldwide of this tournament, it just really takes off at Euro 1996. So looking forward to that episode. That'll be up later this week. Um, and I hope you guys are enjoying this pro- this uh, this whole project as much as I am. This was another fun one to research, but I'm really, really excited about Euro 1996. I mean, I think that's just like a, a perfect time in the UK. Um, I mean, with Brit pop booming and all that stuff. We'll get to that on the next episode, but um, I have a lot to say about Euro 1996. So plus the tournament expands from eight teams to 16 teams. So that will be our longest episode of the series so far. But again, I hope you guys are enjoying this. Thanks for listening to this one, and we'll see you again next time.